for a while we've been talking about the, you know, the kingdom of uh, God and our inheritance in the kingdom. And uh, it's unusual having that along the side. Oh, well. And uh, anyway, we've been talking about this and talking about this. And over the next, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, I'm finishing it. So everybody say he's going to be finished. There we go. All right. Okay. We talked about how partnership with God is taking responsibility. It requires investment. But today I want to talk to you about how it's the most rewarding way to live. Everybody say amen. amen. It is important that you hear this this morning. This is the most important uh, message I think you may hear for a long time because you need to understand how rewarding it is to live as a partner with, the king, with God in his kingdom. We've, we started off this whole series using chairs. Remember the three chairs on the platform? And we talked about that, you know, that chair one was understanding the, the pathway to God or the God's plan for us was being, having, and doing, right? We talked about how it was being, having, and doing. The world believes, unfortunately, that they have to do something in order to have something so that they can be something. That's the world way. We're told every single day through teachers, through school, through work, through uh, television commercials. I mean, bombarded every day that you got to do something before you have something so that you can be something. This is the message that we're sold all the time. And it is completely the opposite of the kingdom of God. It is the opposite of our kingdom and our inheritance. Because by God's design... We are something, so we can have everything, and we can do anything. Are you hearing me this morning? Because of the work of God in my life, I am something. I'm a, I, I, I am a divine, infused being walking in an earthly journey, amen? And because of who I am, uh, I can have everything that is available to me, and I can do anything that God calls me to do anything. There should be nothing that gets in our way. If God says do it, we can do it. Now, the key thing here is if God says do it, sometimes we get a little ahead of ourselves. God didn't say it, and we start, you know, tackling it anyway, and then we get, you know, wounded, right? And then we blame God, and God says, did I really say, right? But when God says, we can do, amen? As Barry always says, if God orders the pizza, He'll pay for it. Come on, you guys could do better than that. If God orders a pizza, he'll pay for it. That's right. So if God says do it, then he's going to take care of it. Amen? And this is the principle right here that undergirds God's kingdom. This is the foundation of God's kingdom. All right? You have to understand that. This revelation is what undergirds. It's the foundation of the kingdom of God. We were called to be sons and daughters. Then we can discover what we have as an inheritance. And then we realize what we can do because we have because of who we are. Amen? Are you hearing me this morning? And uh, we need to get this into our spirit. We need to get it so deep down into our spirit that nobody can ever get us off of it. And this is the truth. And when we have a truth deficiency, it becomes 
it leads to a love deficiency, which leads to a blessing deficiency, right? Sometimes you wonder why you're not blessed. I'll bet you it's because you really don't comprehend the love God has for you. And the reason you don't comprehend the love is because you're believing a lie. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? Speaking of lies, back in the garden, Adam and Eve, right? You guys remember this story? Let's look at the scripture, Genesis chapter 3. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what was the promise of Satan here? In other words, this is what he said, okay? He said, if you do, right? Are you seeing this? If you do eat the fruit, right? Then you will have, you will have opened eyes. You will know good and evil, right? If you do, then you will have, and then you will be like God. Do you see this? I'm not just making this stuff up. Are you seeing this? This is, a, this is the way the enemy's been working from the beginning. If you do, if you'll just eat the fruit, then you will have uh, this revelation, this understanding, and then you will be like God. That's the enemy's trying to get us to work that way all the time. And life does not work out well this way. It didn't work out well for Adam and Eve. And it hasn't been working out well for people who try to live by this uh, ever since then. And, uh, you know, since the fall in the garden, we've been trapped into this system where we're listening to the lie over and over and over again. And if you really look at what Satan did here, all he did was he inverted the order of their identity. Instead of be, have, do, Satan flipped it on its end to do, have, be. Do you see what he did? That's all Satan did. He just flipped the order of identity and inheritance. And that's what he's been doing ever since. He's flipping the order on people. And you know, and here's the incredible irony of it. The great irony is that Satan attempted Adam and Eve to become something that they already were. The Bible says they were already made in the image of God. They were already his prized creation that he made them. And he said, let us make man in what? Our image. Satan tempted them with what they already had. He sold them this lie and they bought the thing and they ended up destroying all of the privilege that they had as sons and daughters. They were cast out of the garden. They had to now work for their food. Everything was no longer just obedient to them by nature. Everything got messed up, turned on its upside down because they listened to the inverted lie and actually tried to get what they already had. And I find so many Christians are just like that. You're striving and striving and working to, to, to become something, to get something that you already have and you already are. You understand what I'm saying? And it leaves you feeling frustrated and it leaves you feeling, uh, you know, like, like God's not with you, but he is with you. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and they were placed there as beings in his divine image, as people who had everything they needed and people who could do anything. They could accomplish it. They even got to name the animals, for crying out loud. I mean, talk about privilege, you know. Uh, but Satan flipped that around, and the world's been suffering ever since. And Satan is still peddling that lie today. He's still peddling the same lie. The same lie to people today is that you gotta, you got to go out there 
and you got to do so you can have, so you can be somebody. And it's a lie. And it's a lie. And it's a dead-end road. It's a dead-end road. He still peddles this today, and people foolishly buy in. The lie that there is a higher or a better identity than being a son or a daughter of God the Most High, but you know what? There isn't. That's as high as it gets. You can't get any higher than how God created you to be. And everything else, everything else from prophet to president is just assignment. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not identity. It's assignment. Barry, people say, well, Barry is a great prophet of God. It's an assignment. It's not his identity. Barry is a son of God. That's his identity. Are you hearing me this morning? You see, it doesn't matter what your assignment is. Your identity is not your assignment. Your identity is I am a son or a daughter of God. I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I have been privileged and I am a joint heir. I have everything available to me and I can do whatever assignment he gives me. Amen? Praise the Lord. So, Adam and Eve began living like they didn't have anything and then working so they could become something when they already had it in the first place. And most people in our culture are still, even Christians, are still working do, have, and be. I see it every day. And the reason is, if you don't know how much you're loved by your Heavenly Father, then there's going to be areas, there's going to be parts of your heart that are hidden from His love. And those parts of your heart that are hidden from God's love is where you will invest all of your energy doing and doing and doing to have that affection, to have that grace so that you can finally say, here I am, I'm a good Christian. And none of us are good Christians because of what we do. I'm not a good Christian because of what I do. I do bad things sometimes. I do bad things sometimes. I did some bad things this week. It's okay, so did you. I did. When I get a lot of pressure, a lot of stress on, I can tend to get snappy. Anybody else like that? Hard to believe. Usually steady Eddie, but I can get snappy if I'm stressed. I'm just, just being honest here, I can do that. And, and you know, uh, you, can, you can end up, you know, doing things that don't reflect who Christ has made you to be. Right? And then you can say to yourself, well, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to fix it. You don't fix it that way. Instead, you go back and say, I already know who I am. I am loved by God. And I have everything I need, so I don't need to be all this stress. And then I can do everything he calls me to do. And if he didn't call me to do it, then stop doing it and stop being stressed. Am I making any sense to anybody? So I'm a, I am a good Christian, but I'm not a good Christian because of what I do. I'm a good Christian because of who I am. I'm a son of God. I'm a son of God. I'm loved by God. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And because of that, I can do some good things. I can but that's not what makes me a good Christian. I'm a good Christian because I'm a son of God. Am I making any sense to anybody? Being a son or a daughter of the king and partnering with him is absolutely the best way to live. It takes out that striving. It takes out all that the shame. gets rid of all that stuff. And it sets you up for success. 
Now, I want to illustrate this this morning by telling you a story from the Bible. And it's the prodigal son. But I want you to see the story, perhaps in a way you've not seen it before. Now, we've been telling you to buy this book for a long time called uh, Reigning from Rest. We've had it up on the screen. Adam, you read that book. Was that a good book? I'm telling you, it's a good book. If you haven't read the book, get a hold of it. This is not just a sales pitch to get rid of all the books that we have in the bookstore. <clears throat> Although if this works, Cheryl will be happy. Uh, she always likes to unload the inventory. But probably, as a staff we've been working through, this probably one of the most impactful books I've read in the last 15 years. And it, it got me thinking about, in the one chapter where he starts talking about this, and I thought, I have to talk to you about this this morning. That, the, that when we've, the Bible starts to look different when we view it from chair one. And the story of the prodigal son is going to look different to you this morning because we're going to look at it for what it is to be in, and if you remember those messages, I don't have time to go over it all this morning, chair one, two, or three, but where God has called us to be is is sons and daughters sitting in chair one. And when you look at the stories of the scripture from that lens, they're very different. So I want you to see this this morning as we uh, go through this story that you've probably heard dozens of times, but this morning you might hear it for the first time. Now, here's the interesting thing. First of all, let's just say this. Traditionally, this story is titled the story of the prodigal son, right? How many know it is the story of the prodigal son? Let me see your hand. How many have heard the story before? Let me see your hand. Sure, yeah. Okay, but you know what? That's actually evidence that we filter the scripture for the last 2,000 years because it doesn't say, there is no biblical heading that who wrote, wrote the scripture. Luke, when he wrote the scripture, didn't say, this is the story of the prodigal son. No, no, that's added by uh, that portion is just the title. Those things are not inspired scripture, okay, when you see those titles. Those, only the things with numbers in front of them, the verses, are inspired scripture. The rest is just trying to help you know where you are in the Bible, and their headings to help you navigate, etc. The heading is almost every one of the Bibles you look, the prodigal son. But this is not really the story of the prodigal son. That's a chair two perspective. This is actually the story of the father's love. That's what this really is. Isn't it interesting that traditionally we look at it from the perspective of sin rather than the perspective of redemption? We look at it from the sin rather than the love. We even title it in our scriptures, the prodigal son sold into the chair two perspective that it's about what we do and how we live when it should be about our God. Are you hearing me this morning? Should be called the story of the father's love because that's what it is. It is the story of the father's love. That's what it is. Now, the story is about two sons, right? They were both called sons. The one son was rebellious. The other son was religious. But they both were stuck in chair two. And I'm going to show you that this morning. They were both trying to uh, do so they could have, so they could be. Are you hearing me this morning? Let's look at the rebellious son. We all know where he ended up, feeding pigs, right? Let's look at the rebellious son, the one that they named the story after, the prodigal son, right? The rebellious son was focused on himself. The spirit of rebellion that some of you are wrestling with here this morning is a spirit focused on yourself. The prodigal son, the rebellious son's interest was himself and himself alone. He didn't care what decisions he was making, how they impacted his father, how they impacted his brother, how they impacted the rest of the, of the, uh, the uh, community or the people who worked with their family, nothing. 
All he cared about was himself. And he didn't understand his identity because if he understood who he really was, if he understood the power of being this wealthy man's son, he wouldn't have went and asked for his portion of the inheritance early. He would never have asked for it if he really understood who he was. Instead, he would have said, Dad, how can I, how can I step in and make this thing even bigger and better than it is today? But he didn't understand his identity. And he insisted on receiving his inheritance right now. He insisted, give it to me, Dad. Give, 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 give it to me, Dad. I want it right now. And for whatever reason, the father actually, maybe it was just divine wisdom, but whatever, he knew that if he didn't do it, he, wasn't, he was going to lose his son permanently. This way, he may only lose him temporarily. I don't know. But he actually acquiesced and he gave the son his inheritance. And then the son took it, and we all know the story, right? And he wasted it. He took that inheritance and he wasted it. And there's something maybe you don't know. The religious leaders that Jesus was telling this story to would have stoned him if this man was in front of him, this young man was in front of them right now because of the shame he was bringing to that family by asking for an inheritance. You don't ask for an inheritance before the person's deceased. That's just, that's just unheard of in any culture. But in a Middle Eastern culture where family and, 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 and certain values about family, so you just would never do that. But that's what he did. And the religious leaders, they would have stoned this kid if they had him right in front of them. But then we all know the story, right? We all know that he, after wasting all this money on riotous living, the Bible says, on prodigal living, that he ended up destitute. He ended up slopping the hogs, right? And he ended up looking at the food that he was giving to the pigs and thinking, that looks good, right? And if you understand Jewish culture, Middle Eastern culture, pigs were like a filthy animal. You did not have anything to do with pigs, and here he was working with pigs. And I want you to see something. The son comes to his senses, and, uh, but he doesn't really repent. He didn't say to himself, I'm so sorry for what I've done to my dad. I am so sorry for all the pain I've caused my family. I am so sorry for the decisions that I've made and what they've done and the impact they've had. There's none of that in the story. It's not there. All he does is think to himself, hmm, this isn't working out very well. So I could live better if I went to my dad and just said, look, I'll come back. I don't deserve to be your son anymore, but if you take me as a, as a servant, I'd be happy. Because he thinks to himself, and it's right in the scripture, even my father's servants are living better than me. Right? So who's he still thinking of? Himself. Nothing's really changed. He says, you know, it, it, even my dad's servants, they're doing better than me. I should go home. I should go home. And that's why he makes his decision. He didn't repent. There's no sorrow. There's no, he's maybe sorry for the situation he's in, but he's not sorry for the pain and grief he caused his father. He's just sorry that his luck seems to run out. His money seems to run out. And now he's in a bad, bad situation. So then the story changes. The Bible tells us that while he was still afar off, he's coming down the road, he's probably rehearsing what he's going to say to his dad over and over in his mind. And while he's, he's still afar off, the Bible tells us, his father saw him. I like to think his dad had been getting up every morning and looking for his son right from the time that he left. Because that's the heart of the father for the son. And, and, and the Bible says this, it says, the father uh, ran after his son. I find it interesting. The father didn't run away from the sin. The father ran toward the sin. 
The Father's heart for you this morning, it doesn't matter what you've done. God's not going to run away from you. He's going to run right toward you. He's running right toward you this morning to tell you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. He's not running away from you. He's running toward you. You're here this morning because God's running toward you. He's brought you here this morning because he's trying to draw you to himself. He's, he's wanting to set up divine appointment with your life. That's what God's doing. When the father got to his son, well, some people said, why did he run? Why did he run? That's a good question. Why did he run? Why did he run? I'm not really sure. Some people say it was because he couldn't wait to see his son. Other people say he ran because he was afraid of the villagers when they see him coming onto the property. And remember, his holdings were vast, right? That uh, many people probably squatted and lived in his property. When they saw the son of dishonor coming, they'd have probably tried to stone him. So the father ran out to try and save him from an honor killing. I don't know. I don't know why he ran, but we do know this. It would have been a dishonor in this culture for him to lift up his hem of his garment like that and to show his legs. And he was willing to put aside all shame, all disrespect, everything, all his dignity so that he could have his son back. The father's love did more than we can possibly imagine because at that point, I believe, is when the son's heart finally began to shift. As he tried to get out his well-rehearsed story, Dad, uh, uh, you know, I'm... I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he just said, you're home. And then he called the servants. He said, you know, kill a fatted calf. And then he took his robe off and he threw it on his shoulder. And he took a ring and he put it on his finger. And he got new sandals for his feet. And he loved him into the family again. He loved him into the family. He embraced him. He kissed him. He treated him as if he had never done anything wrong. If you're here this morning, you've been running hard from God, come back to him today. No hoops to jump through. There's no, you know what he's going to do? He's going to treat you like you were never gone. And if you, in past times, belonged to a church where there were conditions, where all of a sudden all the stuff was put on you, you know what? That's just not scriptural. God's love is like you were never gone. God's love is like you were never gone. His love is so thorough for us. So he doesn't say, well, you know, if you... I remember I was raised Catholic. How many people were raised Catholic? Let me see your hands. And I used to go to confessions, right? You have to go to the confession booth. And then afterwards, the, the priest would give me uh, prayers that I had to say as acts of penance. They were things I needed to do to demonstrate that I was truly, you know, worthy to be forgiven. And in years gone by, I heard all kinds of stories of things that priests used to give to people to humiliate them, to really break them down so that they would really, really understand, you know, what they did. But that's not the way God works. He didn't do any of that to his son. Instead, he treated him like royalty. He treated him like the prime guest at a party. And he said, come, let's throw a party. Let's, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. Now, I'm going to move along quickly here. Let's talk about the religious son. Because there were two sons in this story, right? 
You guys remember that? There are two sons in the story. So let's talk about the religious son. <laughs> hmm. The religious son. How many can relate to the religious son? Come on, be honest. It happens, doesn't it? You know? The older son, what was he out? He, where was he? Was he looking for his brother to return? No. You know, uh, he was stuck in chair too. He was out doing so that he could have, so that he could be. Because if you remember, the Bible says that the father gave his inheritance to both boys. So the older son already also had received his inheritance. But what's he doing? He's still out in the field doing so that he can have, so that he can be. He's not looking for his brother to return. Mm-mm. No way. In fact, here's something for you. He didn't want to be in a family relationship with his brother. He calls him, this is in the scripture, look at it, Luke 15, verse 30, this son of yours rather than my brother. When he talks to his dad about his brother, he says, this son of yours comes home and you throw a big party for him, but you never threw a party for me and my friends. He doesn't say, my brother comes home and you throw oh, this son of yours. He doesn't even want to be associated with his brother. He's just too good for that. But he's angry at everything that's being done for his brother. He's really angry. And that's what the religious spirit does. The religious spirit sees somebody come back to Christ and, you know, maybe they, they know all the things that they did and they know how hard they ran after sin. And then they come back and people in the church, there's all fun all over them and love on them. And then they celebrate them coming back. Nobody ever threw a party for me, but that dirty, filthy sinner come home and they just fawned all over them. They just loved on them. Must be nice. Come on, you guys have said that and thought that just more than a few times. Must be nice. You know, you see somebody in the body of Christ, they're only saved a few months, and all of a sudden they get a new job, and, and then they get a new car, and they get this, and that, this thing happens for them. And you're like, that never happens to me, God. Must be nice. There is no greater religious spirit than the must be nice. You want to know, you say, I'm not religious. Oh, yeah? If you thought that, welcome to the world of religion, people. You are fully in. You're fully ensconced at that moment. As soon as you think that way, you can't get more religious than acting like the religious brother. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Needed that. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm telling you, he had a religious spirit. See, this, the spirit that gets offended when people come in off the streets and immediately receive God's favor. The must-be-nice spirit. It's a religious spirit. And it comes from the orphan heart just like the rebellious spirit. They both are firmly in chair two. Neither one of them able to get their identity straight from the source. Neither one of them recognizing who they are. The religious spirit does not see what it already has. Are you hearing me this morning? The religious spirit works to earn favor and love. The religious spirit is offended by the fruit of God's grace. It's offended by it. It's offensive to them. 
And the religious spirit misses out on enjoying all that the Father has given them. Because when you, when you uh, can't see what you have, and when you're trying to work to earn favor, and when you're offended by the fruit of grace, then you miss out on all the beautiful things that God has for you. If you're sitting here this morning, you've been Christian most of your life, and you're looking around at people who are new believers, and they just seem to be going much further, much faster than you, I would hazard to say that you need to take a look inside and say, Lord, have I got a religious spirit? Have I been stuck living in condemnation and judgment on other people? Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. The Lord has redeemed us so we can live as sons. And hear me this morning as I close. I get it. It's not the only way to live. You can walk out of this place this morning and you can say, no, I'm going to continue in my rebellion. I'm going to continue in my religion. I'm going to continue in whatever your thing is and however you want to describe it. It's not the only way to live. There are lots of choices you can make. But I can tell you it's simply the best way to live. You're here this morning and you're wrestling with God and you're arguing with God and you're fighting with God and you've got all this stuff going on in your life. Can I tell you this morning that, that submitting to Him and, and realizing who you are and what you have and what you're capable of doing is simply the very best way to live. There is no substitute. There's nothing that can even come close. And you might be striving after a bigger house. You might be striving after a better car or more vacations or new toys or all kinds of things that we can get caught up with in this world that of which there's nothing wrong with them in themselves. But when they become your obsession, when they become something that stamps you as having arrived, when they become the thing that, ident- that you identify with and that you take your person from, then those things have gotten in the way and you have either become re- rebellious or you have bought into religion, either way, you are outside of God's purpose for your life. We need to decide, what are we going to do with God's love? Are we going to finally get to a place where we say, Lord, I understand who I am. I've been created to be your son and your daughter. Because I know who I am, I know what I have. I'm a joint heir of Christ. And I have forgiveness, and I have mercy, and I have love, and I have power, and I have authority. I have all of these things because of who I am. And because of what I have, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because I have strength because of who I am. Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? So I have two words here this morning. For the rebellious... Come home this morning. Well, you know, uh, what do you mean by rebellious, Pastor? You know, I'm, I come to church. I'm not really rebellious. I don't, I don't. You come to church. Great. But what place does it play in your life? Is, is your faith your life? Are you consumed with who Christ is and what it means to be part of his family? Going to church is just... If, if you're not in the family, going to church is just going to church. And all the corny jokes about going to church doesn't make you a, a Christian or make you a son or a daughter any more than taking a car to a garage 
I mean, uh, your Volkswagen or a whale trailer or something in the garage makes it into a Cadillac or a, a minivan. It doesn't change it. What changes is on the inside. Are you hearing me? You've got to change the inside. It's got to come from the inside. Stop rebelling. Stop running away from what God's plan is. Stop running away from His purpose in your life. God doesn't want to, you know, place on you some overwhelming burden that you can't carry. He wants just the opposite. He wants to bless you. He wants to, he wants to love on you. He wants to give you every opportunity to excel. He wants your life to be absolutely the most. He wants you to be able to lay your head down at the end of your life and look back and go, wow, what a ride. That's what God wants. That's what he wants. What a ride. Stop rebelling. Stop rebelling today. It doesn't matter if the rebellion's small or if it's big. Stop rebelling. This is not a house of judgment. This is a house of love. And when we say, I'm going to stop running, Lord, guess what? Just as if you'd never left is how we operate. So stop rebelling this morning. And if rebellion's not the issue, if it's religion, if you've been here and you've been serving, you've been serving, you've been working, you're saying, but I just don't seem to get any further ahead. Recognize it's not about position. There's nothing to get further ahead in. You're already a son. You're already loved. You're already uh, a joint heir with Christ. You're already, the, the rest of it's just assignments. And it doesn't matter what your assignment is. It doesn't matter your assignment is a, a pizza delivery boy or if your assignment is a, you know, a prophet of the nations. It doesn't matter. If it's what God called you to do, then do it with all your heart. And just say, praise the Lord. I am loved by God. God wants to set us free from rebellion, and He wants to set us free from religion, and He wants to do it today. And every great move of God begins with a decision. Begins with us saying, Lord, here am I. Here am I. Pick me. Pick me. Pick me. You don't have to be perfect. Like I already said, I'm not perfect. Nobody here is perfect. Guess what, though? We're being worked on by God. We're being perfected. We're not perfect, but we're being perfected by Jesus. By Jesus. Not by what we do. Not by, by, you're not being perfected by how much you pray. You're not being perfected by how much you serve. You're not being perfected by how much you give. You're being perfected so that you can pray and serve and give. The perfecting is done by Jesus. It's done by Jesus. It's not done by you. It's just not done by you. Stand with me this morning. I believe that there's, there's many here this morning that this is, this is one of those days. This is a pivotal day. And you've, whether it's to a small degree or a large degree, you've been living a lie for a long time. You've been stuck in this, either this rebellious rut or this religious rut, and it doesn't matter. God's just saying today, stop running. Stop running. And start uh, instead submitting to His love and His grace. God wants nothing better than to see you realize your potential this morning. He wants to embrace you and see you walk as a son or a daughter. 
That's what he wants. So, Father, this morning in Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you that you have called us. You've called us by power of Holy Spirit. And, Lord, you've called us and identified us each by name. And, Lord, you have said, you are my son or daughter. You, Kevin, my son or daughter. You, Sherry, you're my daughter. You, Barry, you're my son. Uh, he, he just goes across this room and he's speaking to you. It doesn't matter who you are. You are my child. And I love you. Would you just give yourself over to me today and see what we can do together? Church, I believe that in very few places has the world ever seen what can happen when a group of people fully submit themselves to Christ. But when they do, the results are unbelievably supernatural. If we'll do it this morning, if we'll do it this morning, we can begin a pathway and a journey of supernatural community transformation that impacts not just Belleville, but the world. But it all starts with me. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name, by the Holy Spirit, that, Father, you would call people to yourself, and they'd step out of the religion or the rebellion, and they'd just say, God, here am I. It might have been subtle, it might be big, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God's saying, please just submit to me. Submit to me this morning. Submit to me this morning. Walk away from the rebellion and the religion and submit to me this morning. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. If God's speaking to you this morning, I want you to come down here right now and we're going to call on God together as a people and say, Lord, I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I hear it. I get it. I'm here this morning. I'm your son and your daughter. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I uh, am so I can, uh, I know I have and I can do all things through Jesus Christ. Just come on up here. We don't want to delay this this morning. If God's speaking to you, lay it down this morning. It might be small, it might be big, it doesn't matter. Come forward this morning, lay it at his feet. Because I believe that if we will step into this uh, best way to live as a full-on son and daughter of God, full-on son and daughter of God, then we will see our nation transformed as people get a hold of this truth in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you right now. You're speaking to hearts. Lord, you are transforming our hearts from the inside out. Father, you're calling us as your sons and your daughters in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Shakara.